Good to see all of you here today. Um, I want to just thank you again for um, all of your encouragement and your prayers over these past weeks. Uh, Claire is not here today, but she is at home, um, and so she is excited to be here with you next week. Uh, she just wasn't quite up to the task today, uh, making progress each day better and better. We have been in a series traveling through looking at the life of the great man of God, Job, and uh, we continue with that today. Kenny did a terrific job last week, didn't he? Um, I appreciate him over and over again. I know that I've mentioned this before, but we have such a wonderful church staff here. We are so fortunate to have people who are uh, gifted, uh, have tremendous talent, but that also are committed to where truth comes from. Uh, their hearts are in the right place. They love the Lord, and so we are just blessed uh, through their ministry. So thank you to Kenny um, and the youth group that he is leading. Um, our, our text for today comes from Job chapter 2. When we, come, when we arrive at, we've looked at Job chapter 1, and we see all this terrible day that happened to Job and how Job responded in the midst of that. Uh, the adversary did not get what he wanted, the response he was hoping to get out of Job. Uh, Job did not capitulate uh, to all this tragedy that was entering into his, uh, sit into his life. And so the, the adversary comes to God a second time in Job chapter 2 with another um, plan or another scheme, if you would, of trying to get Job to uh, curse God. And so uh, the, his second scheme is that he wants for, um, for God to strike down Job or for Satan, for God to allow Job, Satan to strike down Job with all these sores all over his body. And so when we come to chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, we see this happen, and then we see the response of both Job and his wife. So we get to hear from Job's wife today. Um, our text, again, comes from Job chapter 2. I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet. We'll be reading verses 7 through 10. Job chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Here we go. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so I just want to walk through these verses. We'll start there at verse 7. So God has allowed Satan to go out, the adversary to go out, and to strike down Job with all of these sores across his body. It says in verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he did just that. He stroke, struck down Job with loathsome sores. So all of the things that uh, Satan had done to Job so far had been against his family, against his livelihood, against his servants, um, against his property. But he wasn't allowed to touch Job physically, but on this occasion, he is. He actually comes at Job physically. There's some debate amongst commentators as to what exactly it was, uh, what these sores were. Some say it was some form of skin cancer. Some others say it was a really advanced form of psoriasis. Others say that it was um, leprosy. Uh, so there's lots of different ideas out there as to what this was. Um, in his book, entitled Job, uh, Chuck Swindoll actually gives a list. I've got that list for you here of uh, all the different things that happened to Job, uh, or at least the symptoms of, this, of these sores. He uh, said, and then the verses where, these, where he pulls these from, he says that Job experienced inflamed oozing sores, 
persistent itching, disfiguration. We learn in Job just a little bit later in chapter 2 when his friends come to visit him, they don't even recognize him because these sores are so bad. He has a loss of appetite and depression. Those two went hand in hand. The text uh, talked about that there were worms that formed in the sores themselves, perhaps from the flies that were landing on him and all the sorts of things. So you can imagine the difficulty breathing. He had foul breath and he had a high fever and an upset stomach. So as you look across the whole book of Job, uh, Chuck Swindoll has kind of extracted from different places in the text and said, this is what this guy's experiencing physically. Um, He had sores from the bottom of his feet. Um, He was itching in his scalp and everywhere in between. Job basically becomes the personification of human misery. He was clinging to life. He must have been a pitisome sight to behold. Look at verse 8. It says in verse 8, And Job took a piece of pottery, or broken pottery, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. The ashes there referring to the family's burn pile. You know, he had a large household. They probably had a large garbage burn pile. And so they they burn all their garbage. They burn all their waste. And so he's sitting on these ashes in the family dump, if you would. Now, when we come to verse 9, we get to hear from, or hear from the first time, and it's the only time from Mrs. Job. She just gets one line. In all 40 uh, chapters of this book. Um, and her line is, verse 9, here's what she has to say. Then his wife, Mrs. Job, said to her husband, Do you still hold fast your integrity? And then her suggestion is, Why don't you curse God and die? So, what do we do with this? Well, some commentators have said, because that sounds like kind of a not really nice thing to say. Um, and so some commentators have suggested that her, um, her advice to her husband is actually uh, an act of compassion. That she's seen, they've experienced all of this disaster, they've experienced all of this loss, and now he is physically completely devastated. And so in a, in a, in a statement of mercy... She's inviting him to, look, if you would just curse God, we know what will happen on the other side of that. You will be able to experience the sweet release of death, and you'll be able to go on to eternal peace with God, and so you can just leave this world and the suffering of it behind. And so some commentators have read this that way. Um, That is a possible understanding of this, but I don't think that that is what is happening here. Anytime we are reading the Bible, we have to take the words of the text in context. So you can't just read one statement and think we understand what that means. Rather, we have to read that one statement and read what goes on before, what goes on after. And then all of that forms our understanding of of the meaning. Um, So the question is, how do the verses around this inform us about the meaning of Mrs. Job's statement? Well, let's take a look. Look back at Job chapter 1 and verse 11. Here we learn that the adversary Satan has just questioned the sincerity of Job's faith. He basically comes into heaven and he says to God, Hey God, you're blessing Job tremendously. And the only reason why he is this upstanding, worshipful, religious, devout follower of you is because you keep giving him stuff. And you're just a means to an ends for him. That's the whole basis of your relationship. If you stop giving him stuff, if you even took the stuff away, hey, look, he's going to curse you to his face or to your face. And so Satan says, verse 11, if you stretch out your hand, take it all away, Job will curse you to your face. And so that's the test. That's what Satan is trying to get Job to do. He's trying to get Job to curse God, to turn his back on God. Um, 
so when we get to Mrs. Job, and then if you look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 5, again in the second test, uh, again Satan says, stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and Job will curse you, God, to your face. Again, this is what Satan is trying to get Job to say. So when we get to her response on the heels of just learning what the test is, right? And we come to her response just a few verses later in verse 9. And she advises her husband to curse God and die. It sounds an awful lot like she is being used here as a tool of the adversary. I mean, given the fact that her advice comes right on the heels of Satan's stated goal and that she suggests that her husband speak the same words that the adversary is aspiring for Job to speak, I don't know how we could see this any other way than that she is tempting her husband to be unfaithful to God. She is inviting her husband to give into temptation. She is inviting her husband to compromise on his integrity. Simply put, Mrs. Job is inviting her husband to sin. And again, that's just a plain reading of the text as we travel through chapters 1 and chapter 2. You know, let's just pause here for a second. My heart goes out to this lady, right? I mean, she just lost everything. She just lost her family the same as her. I mean, the focus is on Job, but how about her, right? She just lost family. She just lost their livelihood. She just lost all their servant. She just lost their ability to take care of themselves. It's not just Job that lost. She did too. She is just as grief-stricken as he is. And now this physical attack comes on her husband. She can't even be close to him, physically close to him, because of the sores that are covering his body. It's probably very difficult for her even to get upon and look upon her husband so while her advice is wrong and, and I want to be clear that her I think her advice is wrong I don't think that we should enjoy, we should join Martin Luther the great theologian Martin Luther who said that she is the devil's handmaid I don't know about that Martin I, I think you're a little bit a little bit heavy-handed there I mean this one bad moment in her life should not be an impugning of her total character she had a bad day. Welcome to the human race, right? Uh, let's give her a little slack here. Given the circumstances, who could blame her? I'm not excusing her actions. Please don't hear me justifying sin. It is sin what she is suggesting. But I don't think that any of one of us wants to stand in judgment over this grieving mother and wife. Again, she had a bad moment. She had a bad day. She is at a low point. But this need not be an indication of her overall character. Again, she's the wife of Job. Job, this great man of God. We would assume, and I think, it's, I think it's appropriate for us to assume, is married to a great woman of God as well. She's just having a bad day, and her faith fell short in the moment. Now, this is not the point of verse 9, all the stuff I've been sharing here with you. What's the point of verse Why Why would they include, I mean, she's not even a main character. She gets one line in the whole book. She only gets one mention here in the whole book. So why would they include this one line from her, the person who's writing this? I mean, there's different theories about who actually wrote the book of Job. Um, but why would they include this one line in here? Um, I, I think the reason for it is because it shows uh, that, at least in this instant, that Job is all alone in the world. That Job is all alone in the world. I mean, here is the most important person in the world to him. And she, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of lack of clarity perhaps, has just gone a place where Job can't go. 
um, the most important person in the world to him are not his uncles. It's not his cousins. Uh, she means more to him than his friends. He loves all of those people, but the person whose opinion matters the very most to him the person who he has learned to rely on these many years, the mother of his children, the lady in his life, and knowing Job the way we know Job, he adored her. He adored her. And this person, that person, the most important person in his life, has just advised Job to violate a most deeply held core belief. She said, curse God. Something Job cannot do. And with that statement, Job finds himself alone in the world. I think that's why her statement is introduced into the text. Would you agree that this single statement is perhaps the deepest cut of all? All right, well, that is our treatment of this passage for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate that Job and his wife were having uh, some, some moments of unclarity or clarity, or however you want to look at it, and, uh, and that they're, but I'm, so, I'm assuming that they work this out, and they do. We'll learn about that here in just a second. But, I mean, what does that do with, for me? I mean, I've got to get off to work tomorrow. I've got to get the kids to school. I've got all kinds of things I need to do, things I need to take care of. Um, what difference does this make to me? Uh, well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, When I step back from the scene, I see not one person in distress. Clearly, Job's in distress, right? But I see two people in distress. I see Job in distress, and I see Mrs. Job in distress. Um, And these are not just two random people. These are two people who are devoted followers of God, of the God of the Bible. These are two people of faith. This is a godly man and a godly woman who are in distress. Yet their responses reveal two very different ways of dealing with that distress. One shows how to respond in times of difficulty. The other shows how not to respond. We'll start with Job in verse 10. It says, But Job responded to his wife this way. He said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. This statement's almost like a statement of surprise. Like, I I can't believe that you just said that, that you just suggested that. He's saying, think about what it is that you just said. This is, this is what foolish women would say. I mean, she's, she's been down to the marketplace before. They've, she's been uh, out to the different ladies' Bible studies before. She's rubbed shoulders with different ladies around town, uh, some churchgoers, some not churchgoers. And, and they've talked together on their way back home from the store. They've talked together on their way back home from town about how there were some things that were said there, some behavior that was taking place, some words that were being spoken that were what his wife and he would call foolish, people who lacked understanding. And so he's saying here, I know you not to be someone like that. And, and he's reminding her in his statement that the, what just popped out of your mouth belongs to those circles that you and I know is not who we are. And so what just came out of your mouth was very much out of character for you. Now, the first difference that this makes to your life and to mine is that when someone we love is drifting toward error, and Mrs. Job is clearly drifting toward error, friends, we do not stand idly by and allow it to happen. We have to speak up. Job corrects his wife, put the shoe on the other foot, his wife corrects him right? Because 
that needs to happen every so often, right, guys? Amen, ladies? Amen? <laughs> Either way you look at it, we don't stand idly by and just allow toxic thinking to permeate the thinking of people that we love. We speak up, we beat it back, we rebuke it if necessary. I don't know that I don't know if there's anybody in this room that knows I'm on the church board for or church board. No, I'm actually on the church board, but on the school board for one of our local schools here where my girls attend school. But we've you know over the years and being on the school board, yeah, you, know, you have things that happen in the school and you have to deal with those sorts of things. And uh, I, at one point, this is several years ago. Nobody in this room. And several years ago, there was a text message thread that went out that was. Um, talking about one of the teachers at the school and some parents were not happy about some things that were happening and so there were some suggestions within the text thread amongst a bunch of parents that how they needed to respond to this um, and it was just it was inappropriate uh, what they were suggesting that how the how the situation would be handled one of the other parents responded with a sharp rebuke and said hey look uh, the bible tells us that if we have a problem with somebody we're supposed to go to that person and trying to figure it out and then if we don't get satisfaction there then we're supposed to come back a second time this time with a witness and if we don't get satisfaction then then we're supposed to go bring that person before the elders of this church and in our scenario it would be uh, the administration Um, and so people were skipping steps one and two and so the person just literally flatly rebuked the suggestions that were being tossed around uh, about how to how to deal with this problem with this particular teacher and so because of that rebuke because of bringing things back to center and reminding people of what the bible teaches uh, the suggestions that were being tossed around didn't happen Uh, the bible says in proverbs 15 and verse 32 whoever ignores instruction despises himself whoever ignores instruction despises himself but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, discipline and correction are gifts to the people we love. If you love someone and Job loved his wife dearly, then you offer correction when correction is needed. Keeping our mouth shut when someone is speaking in error is not a biblical option. Number two, when a friend or family member is in distress, never, and I repeat, never suggest that they compromise their integrity. I had a Christian friend growing up whose mom bought unseemly material for her husband. I'm not sure what her rationale was in doing that, but it wasn't a good one. When we suggest that the people in our lives compromise on their integrity, we allow that, when we allow that to go on, Friends, the end result is always the same. It is days filled with regret. That's what it is. Regret is the offspring. Regret is what is born out of decisions that dishonor God. Sometimes we feel like, well, if I go that way, it'll, it'll you know, pull the relief valve, right? It may give us relief in that very moment, but down the road in the days and the months and the years to come, it always leads to regret. As my dad used to say, it is never the right time to do the wrong thing. Number three, third and finally, third difference that this makes to your life and mine, and this is uh, advice for the men in the room. When speaking to women, guys, we need to be careful to respond with tenderness, not harshness. When speaking to women, we need to be careful to respond with tenderness, not harshness. 
Uh, Look at verse 10 again. Job, rather than dismissing his wife, he asks her a question. He says, verse 10, Shall we receive good only from God? And shall we not also receive evil or disaster is really the word. In other words, Job is trying to help his wife regain a right perspective of the situation. He is saying that God is not bad because bad things are happening to us. Don't, don't, don't define God by circumstances. Nor is God good because good things are happening. That's not how this works. God is not defined by our circumstances. God is good, period. All the time, God is good. That's the way it is. That's who he is. So Job is explaining to his wife, and she's just lost sight of that for the moment. Perhaps just for a very small moment. But again, he gives her an explanation. He doesn't cut her off. He doesn't shut her down. He invites her to consider the issue from a different angle. His response is tender, not harsh. Um, I've got a slide for you here. If you've been around Hebron for a number of years, you may have seen this before. Uh, These are three different views of how men and women, uh, or ro- the roles of men and women in society. I'm going to start at with the male dominance view. The male dominance view uh, basically says that men and women are not equal. Uh, it puts men in charge of everything in, in, a, in, a, hyper, in a hyper setting. Uh, in some Muslim countries, you would see this hyper setting of uh, the male dominance view, where women are, lose, don't have the same rights that men do, men run everything, women are a doormat, That's the male dominance view of how men and women uh, relate to one another. Um, And so there's no equality of persons. Now, the opposite of the male dominance view to the other side of the chart is the feminist left, or what I call the egalitarian view of male-female relationships. Um, It seeks to... egalitarian view seeks to flatten the differences between men and women in an effort to bring about equality of all persons. So in other words, it emphasizes sameness. So egalitarians emphasizes sameness, that men and women are the same. And so this is the way that they see uh, the world. What you get with this view, unfortunately, is gender confusion. And we see that happening in our culture today. No one can say what a man is anymore. No one can say what a woman is anymore because we have flattened the differences between men and women. The Bible stands between these two extremes in what is called the complementarian middle. The Bible sees men and women as different but equal. That a man has certain roles and distinctives that God has created him to accomplish. Same thing for women, that God has created her with certain roles to fulfill in the home, to fulfill in society. And that when you take the gifts of each of those, they actually complement one another and they form a unified whole, a cohesive whole. If you try to extract one or the other out of society or one or the other out of the home, again, it leads to a, a, a form of imbalance. Look again at the male dominance view. Guys, this is where our sinful nature invites us to live. In that male dominance view. To dominate, to speak harshly, to respond with impatience, and that is not how Job responded. He showed his wife the dignity and the respect that she deserved. He did this by tenderly speaking to her. Look at the end of verse 10 again. It says, In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He spoke to her with words of tenderness and invited her back to uh, a clarity of the issue. You know, sometimes, especially when it comes to family, our familiarity with them, 
tends to give us license to speak to them in ways that we would never speak to anybody else, not to friends, not to coworkers, not to people out in the world, but we'll talk to family that way. Friends, we need to be wary to speak with tenderness, especially to those that we love, not with harshness. Um, one final thought for this morning. Over these last couple of weeks for me, Job, I'm, I'm talking from, a, from a, my own perspective here, Job has become, for me, a very close friend. Um, Y'all, I'm sure have been tracking with what we've been dealing with, our family and everything that Claire's going through, and um, we feel the prayers and the uplifting of the church family. But how wonderful it has been for me, Gordon Griffin, not as the pastor, but as Gordon, Claire's husband, how wonderful it has been for me to have clarity of perspective. A clarity that God's word afforded to me. To know that my God is not defined by my circumstances. Isn't that beautiful? And friends, when we build our lives on this firm foundation, God's truth, it gives us a solid place to stand when all of life is just in turmoil. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for, um, for your word. We thank you for what Job went through. We know in, the hi- in hindsight to all this that you were, through his suffering, through his loss, Lord, you were communicating to us your eternal truth. And so we thank you for that. God, we ask that you would, in the quietness of these moments of communion, that you would speak to our hearts that you would remind us again that you are on your throne, that you are indeed God of the universe, that you have all things playing out according to your will, and that, Lord, where things are falling apart, where things are in disarray, you come in behind, unlike the adversary, and you help put those pieces back together. You are a redemptive God. Lord, we thank